You live in illusion, in the appearance of things. There is a reality, but you do not know this. When you understand this, you will see that you are nothing. And being nothing, you are everything. That is all. Welcome to The Imperfect Buddhist, where we discuss mindfulness and incorporating Zen Buddhism into everyday life. My name is Matthew Hawk Mahoney, and this is the final episode of Season 1. Today, I am interviewing the abbot of Dharma Rain Zen Temple in Portland, Oregon, Kakumyo Lo Sharde. Kakumyo has been practicing Zen Buddhism for over 20 years. Today's episode is special for me to share with you. Kakumyo is the first teacher with which I had ever worked. My sessions with him led me to more profound experiences in my practice. Rounding this two-year season one experience with this episode feels right. Next year, I am very excited to meet you with all new episodes for season two of The Imperfect Buddhist. Please enjoy this interview with Kakumyo, Lou Chardé. Mr. Kakumyo. Hey there. We finally connected. I'm on the East Coast. He's on the West Coast. And sometimes the time differences can be a challenge, but we made it. We made it, yes. I'm curious, so did you just do a retreat? Yeah, we did. We just finished Rohatsu Sashin. We had about 25 people, which, you know, since COVID started, it's the first time we've had a, a retreat where we were doing all the services inside and eating inside. So it, it felt a lot more normal. We were still masked and still spaced out in the Zendo, but it was the most normal looking retreat that we've done since this all started. That was really nice, especially given that it's December and we're in Portland. It's <laughs> getting to have meals and chanting inside instead of out on the porch is a pretty big bonus. I always hate when they do these questions at like circles and stuff. You introduce yourself, what do you do? But it'd be nice to tell a little bit about what you currently do and how you got into Zen. Gosh, so I've been doing this for 25 years. I'm the abbot of Dharmarain Zen Temple. I'm a monk here. And this lineage, what that means is that this is my full-time job. I live here, I work here. My day is devoted to taking care of the temple, taking care of the sangha. That's my primary practice. What got me started on this originally was ethical questions, really looking at right livelihood and discovering the career which I was beginning on, I had questions about it. I didn't trust myself to make those decisions. And I felt like I didn't have enough wisdom to really deal with something meaningful like that. And I went looking and <laughs> I'm going to run into these questions throughout life, I hope. And let's figure this out. It's cool that you had what I would call a pretty clean entry into Zen because I've heard this, maybe this might be something you want to talk on, but... sure. I've heard some abbots say, oh yeah, if you're coming here with your mental problems, your anxiety, that's not really why we, we do this or why you're here. Personally, I got into Zen Buddhism from that entry point, having some issues that were like, hey, what's going on here? Why can't I control my mind and my racing thoughts? It's nice to hear that you, you came at it from this clean entry point of desire to connect with wisdom and have a wisdom tradition. I'll say a little bit how I met Kakumyo. 
I was getting into sitting, I looked up meditation groups and there was Paramahansa Yogananda groups and there's you know, these different things. And I saw Zen Buddhism. One of my friends had mentioned to me like, yeah, if you show up late, they have built into the program where you can sit there and then they'll ring the bell and you can go in in a nicer way than just showing up. So I ended up showing up late and <laughs> I was sitting there. I hear a bell, someone tapped me on the shoulder and they said, are you ready for something Zen? I thought they said, <laughs> yeah, I thought they said Zazen. Yeah. I mean, I didn't even know what it was. I just was here for meditation. Uh -huh. They said something Zen. I said, yeah, I'm ready. <laughs> Let's do it. <laughs> I walk into this little hallway. There's a bell and there's a mallet. And I'm looking around and one of the students, she gestures to this bell. And I'm like, what? Pick it up. And I ring this bell. <laughs> and she points to this door. And I'm like, oh, okay, I'm going to go meditate. I open the door and it's Kakamil. He's sitting there. What is going on here? <laughs> Turns out they said San Zen, yeah. not Zazen. And Sanzen, is, it's a meeting with the teacher for practice questions. And so I didn't know what was going on. Kakumiyo pointed to the seat. I sat down and I was sitting there looking at him, trying to be present as much as I could. And he's like, all right, so you can, <laughs> I forget what you said exactly, but it was something you could ask a question or something. So it was just a really awesome, it might have scared some people away, but it was an awesome experience for me. And that was the first time I met Kakumiyo. Yeah. What advice would you give to someone that is just starting out on the path? whether that's as a lay practitioner, someone that's at home, or that's coming to a Zendo to practice? Reversing a wee bit, everybody comes in with suffering. Even if there's a clean slate, there's residue, there's baggage. Everybody's got stuff to work with. The, an acceptance of, yes, this is the condition. For humans, life is messy and complicated. We all have lots to work through. That's the number one obstacle that people run into is this sense that meditation is supposed to feel like X, Y, Z, this figment of imagination of it's always blissful, it's always still, it's always clear, bright, serene. That causes so much suffering, that, that preconception that this is what it should feel like. And if it doesn't feel like that, I'm probably doing it wrong and not really qualified or not spiritual enough or too broken, whatever it may be. That kind of self-doubt is such an inhibitory influence on practice. I really encourage people to trust that meditation is happening at a much deeper level than we can feel. The byproducts of meditation, the side effects, the dependent variables that we notice are, are not the ones that really count. We may be looking for that sense of, oh, I haven't had a thought for five minutes. Oh, that would be a good meditation. It doesn't have that much impact on how much suffering you're having in your life. That's really what it's going to boil down to. And meditation is going to be effective there over time. It doesn't have to feel a certain way. I'm a big fan of concentration and having a still mind is of a lot of benefit, but that can come after a decade of practice. You can start tuning that part up. So to encapsulate the misconception you find is that people come to the Zen practice or meditation, Zazen, with a lot of ideas about what that experience should be Yeah. rather than allowing Zazen to have the effects that it has naturally. Yeah, Zen tends to stylistically attract people who want to get it right. And man, that's an obstacle. <laughs> Flipping that on its head, what advice would you give to someone that's long on the path, that's been practicing for a long time? We all have a tendency to like, oh, that works. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna repeat that, even if it's not working now. Again, it comes back to this trust this practice is bigger than you think it is. What our practice needs and looks like and where the juice is, 
is going to change over time. It starts out very personal, very about me in my mind, and that just gets broader and broader. So to really lean in that direction of how big can this be? How can my sphere of influence get bigger and bigger in terms of not what's my responsibility, but what's relevant to me? What's mine to experience and caretake and respond to? It becomes more inclusive. And the nice thing about that is that all of a sudden there's that much more feedback. There's that much more mirroring the self, getting to see ourselves by where I'm falling short in this or that or the other, where I clench up. This is one of the things I love about you as a teacher is that you come from that fresh, real place. You avoid the cliches, but I'm not going to avoid the cliches. <laughs> the essential, I, and, and this is me trying to repeat back so that I'm hearing you, the audience is hearing you. It's essentially approaching it with a beginner's mind, letting go of that attachment to results and a product and delving into the Dharma in the moment and letting mm-hmm. that be a guide. It can be scary too, because it's it's wide open. It annihilates your illusion of control. Yeah, yeah. I did a class recently. I work for a company that's amazing and they allow me to do self-development courses Mm -hmm. and different career development. And so one of the videos I watched was a line of questioning that you can attack different Mm -hmm. business ideas with. But Mm -hmm. as I was developing these questions for you, I said, what's the opposite of a question you would normally hear during Mm -hmm. a Zen interview? How can I approach this from a different angle? Is it going to be a good one? Who is Zen not for? There are people for whom like it's not conducive. Broad categories. If someone doesn't want it, don't try to convince them. If you've got a friend and Zen's really working for you and you think it should work for them, but they're not wanting it, it's not the right time. It's this internal path is very personal and People have to really want to do that work. It's not going to happen unless there's that internal need for it. So the way-seeking mind has to arise. Another category, the way-seeking mind may have arisen, but for some people, it just doesn't work well. That may be trauma stuff. That may be mental illness stuff. There's some combinations, a whole lot of time spent just watching the mind. If the mind is already fairly chaotic, it's it's not going to be leading you in a good direction. Maybe things that are actually more distracting, that are more engaging, where you're putting all your energy into something might be a better practice rather than this latent potential state. If the autopilot is misfunctioning pretty poorly, it it may not be a good fit. I practiced at Dharma Rain on and off for two or three years. Mm -hmm. And then I was like, man, I really want to check out this whole monkhood thing. I really mm-hmm. want to see what this is all about. And there's an opportunity to do a residency. I stayed for two or three months. I bring all this up because I want to talk about an idealism that was born out of that and where it led me. Living at the temple, incorporating myself into some of the practices that they were doing. My practice was developing. And this idea was like, man, the whole idea is this present moment awareness. Why do I need to sit? Why do I need to be at this temple? What I found is that the fundamental practice of zazen, of that intentionality that comes with the practice, it feeds the possibility of being mindful in my day-to-day life. I wanted to encourage you to talk about your understanding of how zazen fits into the development of awakening. Yes, of course, it's true that you can be mindful or have little, like small meditations throughout the day. And that can be morning commute, it can be at work, it can be lunch break, whatever. If this becomes a prominent part of our life, we find lots of little ways to work micro meditations in and that it just becomes part of what we do. And that can happen in an effective way and an ineffective way. (laughs) 
is much easier to become aware of the mind with support. It's like playing a game on an easy level or a hard level when you're just beginning. And basically in like the first 30 years, if you're just beginning, I feel like I'm beginning Zazen. We need that easier mode. So having a quiet room, having some incense as a cue, having some other people in support, having a particular posture, not multitasking. Those are all things that make it a little bit easier to be aware of the movements of the mind. Of course, as we get better at it, we'll be able to find more ways to do it. But establishing what is happening here, that's just a purely utilitarian kind of practical answer. There's lots of, we could talk an esoteric answer also, but that's the most practical version. You did an interview with somebody, I didn't catch his name. You mentioned something during it that I really liked, and I kind of wanted you to talk a little bit more about it. It hit home with me. It was the idea of cumulative practice, that this is not something like you sit Zazenkai or you go to a week retreat and suddenly you have bodhicitta or this energy in your life. It's something that you need to continue to do. I'm trying to get at this idea that stillness or certain aspects of meditation build on each other. This is why we do retreat. If we sit for half an hour a day, that's great. That builds a broad foundation. If you sit for an hour and a half every day, hey, that's even better. Fantastic. That 90 minutes, there will be oddities where you go much deeper. But in general, there's a certain amount of depth, a certain amount of stillness that you can get with that amount of time. There will be a plateau with practice. That's not necessarily a bad thing. That's That may be what someone is looking for, what they need in, from practice in their life. If someone needs more, then doing retreat is really important, really helpful in getting past those plateaus because we sit so much zazen. There's so much, like there's meditation period after meditation period, there's 10, 12, 14 hours a day, and then it's five, six, seven days long. That's a lot added up. Even if your meditation's bad, <laughs> Even if you feel like you're distracted, you're sleepy or whatever it is, whatever the hindrance is, whatever the obstacle is, that particular retreat, you're going to be affected by it. You're going to be more still halfway through and it's pretty dramatic. So that gives people a taste of, oh, that's what's possible. Not that we're trying to be in that state all the time. We're not trying to freeze that and have that be who I am. But to know that there's that many possible mind states, there's that much range of experience it gives me a new perspective on this everyday stuff. I see it more clearly for, for what it is. You mentioned the plateau. You said some people get the plateau and that's what they need. I didn't fully catch what you meant by that. People practice for lots of different reasons. And some people really want a lot of transformation and other people aren't particularly interested in that much transformation. They're looking for a community or they're looking for a sense of meaning in life or a a meaningful contribution or a sense of structure and ah, this is predictable, this is reliable. A lot of that you can get by going to a Zendo once a month and sitting for 20 minutes a day and that's great. That may really provide the sense of perspective, the sense of I'm connected to a tradition, I have a sense of belonging with this group. That's all important, potentially life-changing. It has an effect on people's happiness. If those kinds of basics are being met, there's room for that door to open further. So I remember it was a, a retreat. I think it was treasure, something of the Dharma eye. Yeah, Genzoe. Yeah. Oh, interesting. Yeah. During that retreat, you said something that has stuck with me. It means something to me. Yeah. <laughs> Some people have this idea of what good are we doing sitting in here doing nothing? Who are we helping? Mm -hmm. You said, who knows the good that we're doing by being here and doing nothing? Mm 
Mm-hmm. That hit me because I was like, wow, that's a really different way of looking at it. I'm curious to see if that concept still resonates with you. Yeah. That's an antidote to the mind that says, I could be sitting here, except that thing gets, gets pulled off. And it's a parallel to this sense of if my mind is instilled, then I'm doing it wrong. And if I'm not helping person X, then what good am I? It's cultivating this appreciation for the, the more subtle benefits of Zen. Part of it is that all of my karma, I'm not accentuating it during that half hour period. I'm not doing anything, rev it up or make it more. It may just be maintaining if the thoughts keep pushing me around, but I'm not actually accelerating it. Another possible investigation thing to try to notice in Zazen is what's the effect of other people in the room? If you can notice them, they can notice you. I sit in the teacher's spot, so I'm watching the whole room and it's super clear that we have an effect on each other. You can see periods where over time, half the group goes through like drowsiness. We're sensitive to that intent, that energy. And so that's certainly happening within the room, but we're touched by it. Everybody in that room goes out and bounces off the rest of their life. And those bounces are a little bit different. There's a little bit slightly different refraction that is hopefully a little more wholesome. But the ripple effect of that half hour of sitting can be quite large. Yeah, you're not out there enacting this karma, whether it was passed down from your parents or things that you've created in this life by sitting in Zazen. You're not accentuating that. You're not speeding it up, speeding that wheel up. You're not passing that on to other people. On this podcast, multiple times I've mentioned one of the explanations for karma you gave me. Hmm. A lot of people hear karma, karma's a bitch. In your last life, if you did this, you're going to be this life. I've never really resonated with that. I remember bringing up my struggle with the idea of reincarnation with you during an interview. You went into this idea of what karma is in a more practical sense. So if you could talk a little bit about that, what is karma? If you're familiar with cognitive science, like every volitional action has an impact. It has an impact on lots of things. At time now, this point in life, we've had just billions of volitional events. All kinds of stuff has happened that we've responded to. It's not just things that we've done, but things that we've said and things that we've thought and ways that we perceive things. Perception is very volitional. Even if it's mostly unconscious, we're, we're making decisions about what something means in ways that are ethically valence, which are relevant to practice. And there's this immense mass of influence that shows up in any given moment that says, oh, okay, this is how it's likely to unfold. Working with karma is getting familiar with what direction is the momentum going to be pushing me in a given situation. And is that really who I want to be? And if it's not, how soon can I recognize that directionality and do a little reorganization? Can I divert some of that? Can I step out of the way, get out ahead of it? What's needed on my end to have the next thing that follows be a little bit more wholesome, a little bit less suffering caused in the world? Every time we are able to do that, every time we're able to see that and respond from a place of mindfulness, basically, that's adding karma in that other direction. It is adding momentum in the other way. It's making it easier to find those choices which are less obvious and have less of that, you know, kind of pre-existing conditioning. Now it's, we're adding conditioning, but it's, it's hopefully conditioning that is much less conducive to suffering. That's a little bit mathematical, maybe. It's not, not the most poetic rendering. What changes do you see in yourself after all of these years of practice? 
The most meaningful is that my sense of inspiration and purpose is guaranteed. I have access to that whenever I look for it. It's solid. It's that thing that I feel buoyant in relation to that. It's sustaining. That is something which is so elusive for so many people. The sense that like, do I matter? Am I doing anything? Does this count? It can be such a obstacle and it doesn't have any hold on me at this point. I feel, I mean, you know, I can get surprised. I should watch what I say. I am much easier going than I used to be. I used to think that I was fairly easygoing, but I wasn't. <laughs> I was pretty uptight. And this willingness to not be judgmental, this willingness to accept things as they are, both internally and externally, that I trust that as a viable option. I know how to find it. And I know if I'm confused, like, oh, that's confusion. And I have some tools that will reorient me. So that's pretty big. It's much easier to let go of a thought. If I have something juicy come up or feisty, whatever it may be, it can disappear without any residue. I just feel more confident in approaching situations like, well, this is gonna work out because I don't need it to be otherwise. So if that's the way it is, like I'm not looking for a lot from this situation, it's easy to win. <laughs> I can imagine hearing that and, and it sounding like, well, that is a failure, but the experience of it is not like that. It really feels like a win. It sounds like coming to your experience from a place of wholeness and already being complete and not looking for your experiences to change something or to change your condition because you're already in a state. I've begun to experience that too. For instance, I'm going to sit for 10 minutes before I talk to Kakumio. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, oh man, I'm feeling some anxiety and some nervousness. Sitting there and watching those things, coming back to that sense of this is what it is. And Mm -hmm. that feeling of wholeness and completion already. To flip that question on its head, what hasn't changed that you're surprised about? I'm still very much me. I expected that I would be less recognizable somehow. We're so good at filling in that continuity of self. The machinery that creates that sense of this is me is so good at what it does. I expected that there would be more really dramatic changes, kind of crazy experiences. It's more everyday than that. Um, It's more mundane than that. If I had heard this when I was 20, it would have been like, man, that's a disappointment. But that's not how it actually lands. I've been here long enough to see people through significant life cycles and people stay recognizable like after many decades of practice. It's just a way they do it or a way like a who they are. And that's not in opposition to the, the momentariness of life. Yes, it's very disconnected. It's very discontinuous, not disconnected, discontinuous. And like the, there is this kind of emergent sense of what it's like to be me. That's basically been fairly stable. It's just more pleasant now. I heard someone, I think it was a Jack Cornfield book and he was quoting somebody else. He talked mm-hmm. about someone that had practiced for a long time and someone asked him, what's changed for you over that long time? And the guy was like, It's kind of like I moved from a cramped apartment with all of my furniture and cats and stuff, and I moved all that into an airplane hangar. (laughs) All the same stuff is still there. There's just more space, more room in there, more air, more fresh air. I don't know if that fully applies to what you're saying. but I kind of like the analogy. Here's a question that I'm going to put it out there. Maybe it's a bullshit question. I don't know. Let's see. God, I can't even read it. It's so bad. Oh, go for it. Go for it. Can you share most profound enlightenment experience you have had? There's been a couple of experiences that have been really significant for me. 
The first one that was probably the most impactful was I was doing a solo retreat in the woods and I was doing nothing except walking and sitting and um, reading this Dharma book. At some point I injured my knee and so it, it swelled up a lot. I was just dealing with a constant pain and I was way out in the backcountry. And so there was this risk aspect to it. I just got in this groove of like breath by breath, step by step, let go of that pain, let go of that fear, go of that irritation at the situation, just right here, what's next? So there were several days of that. And at some point it peaked and I was like, oh, I have to show this mind to my teacher right now. I, at that point I'd already made camp and I just put everything, I just threw stuff together and I basically started running. And I'd been hobbling with the staff for the last two and a half days. And I ran 12 miles, 13 miles to a road and hitchhiked because I, I needed to see my teacher right then. I want to acknowledge that I gave you a little bit of a cop-out answer there and that I, I didn't talk much about the actual experience, but mostly about the, the lead up to it. But just because this is a podcast, I don't know who's listening to it. So I want to personalize that the second half of that answer. Apologize for the half answer. What is one point that if it was truly grasped would be a complete catalyst or transformation for a person? Oh, that's great. There's so many different directions to go there that, that count because completely grasped, like that's, it's so, like the Dharma is holographic. To see into one piece, everything is connected. So that may be, that would be one answer is just interdependence. If you really saw how non-separation is basic, that we're all connected and that the, the, the subject object, like it doesn't make sense. This connectedness is the fabric that as that goes in deeper and deeper, who we are has to change, like how we live our life has to change. So seeing one piece of the true Dharma is seeing the whole piece. It's at least a, a window in. Anybody who says like they see the whole Dharma, like <laughs> ever deeper, ever deeper. It just keeps going. But it's also all connected. You can follow one piece in and it's going to lead to all these other parts of it. So there could be so many different entry gates. Is I guess the part of my point there. Dharma gates are, what is it? Boundless? Dharma gates are boundless. I vow to enter them. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Any closing thought that you'd like to share with listeners? Anything that you'd like to close with? And then how can people find more about you? I just want to thank you for your earnestness in pulling this together. And I know you've put a lot of attention to detail and caring into this and it shows. Thank you for that. It's nice to be a part of it. Thanks for having me and nice to connect with you again. <laughs> it's been a while. Closing thoughts for the Imperfect Buddhist. I'll come back to something I, I mentioned earlier. Overall, this sense of trust that, ah, this is actually it. This is what I need right here. That's is actually true. It's so easy to defend against that truth, but what if we let it in? In little ways, in micro moments, and a smidgen here and a smidgen there, that's fine, but try to let it in a little more. It's very hard to imagine ourselves as a Buddha. <laughs> if non-separation, then there we are. So enjoy it. Thank you, Kakumil. If people want to hear more of your Dharma talks, they can go to, is it dharmarain.org? Yeah, dharma-rain.org and moderately full-service website. There's all kinds of stuff on there. And the temple's in Portland, Oregon, if you want to drop on by. I'm definitely going to stop by, and I'm not going to stop hassling you to be my teacher. <laughs> we'll see. We'll see if that works out. Okay, sounds good. Thank you, Kakumil.